Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Please, <laughs> call me Daddy. <laughs> All right, so we're jumping right in. <laughs> so we've had a major development since the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> Steve uh, is now the proud dad. Yeah. Oh, you're making a lot of assumptions there. <laughs> no, I, I am a proud father. Of a young boy. Yeah. Yeah. And what we're going to do the, today, besides talking about Steve's new son, and over the course of many future episodes... <laughs> is, there, is there a segment about my son? <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Is give everyone the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share everything that we've learned. Or that I've learned. <laughs> that you've learned, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, learned. Learned. <laughs> I've learned nothing. The only thing I've learned is... <laughs> Oh, submitting submitting manuscripts to journals, the <laughs> editing process. You've learned all about being a new dad. <laughs> and, and learning about staying up all night with a baby. <laughs> so, your son, tell everybody his name. Grayson. Grayson was born, what, about a month ago? Yeah, uh, mid-April. Mid-April. Mom's doing good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Steve is learning what it's like to operate on very, very little sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Balance the, not now balancing the PhD with the baby. Yeah. It's a fun combination (laughs) (laughs) so you've joined the rest of us that are um, polluting the earth with more of our progeny yeah although you know uh two people making just one more isn't so bad (laughs) that's true (laughs) i always said i wanted zero or one i was leaning towards zero but my wife and i decided one and then it became an exciting idea so (laughs) i do have to say your your voice sounds somewhat mellower i don't know if the audience is picking that up oh i think it's like the there must be some type of brain damage i think from not getting enough sleep you have more of like a mr rogers cadence to your voice (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. soft and gentle i also have goofy headphones on now so it's throwing me off that's what it is yeah yeah all right (laughs) Do you have any idea what we're supposed to be talking about today? This is one of the rare episodes that I think I don't have any... I I think I can count on one hand the number of times I didn't know. Right, because I don't think we've talked at all about it, have we? No. Steve's been a little busy. And sometimes I'll see in the email, like, you'll ask for artwork for something, and I'm like, oh, he's doing one on beavers this time or something. But this time I know nothing. Yeah, I totally forgot. So... Yeah, as I was walking, I was like, oh, there's a lot of trout lily. I wonder if it's going to be something related to spring ephemerals. But... You know what? Before we before we introduce the topic, why don't we talk about where we are? We were here once before. I don't yeah. remember... It was snowy. Yes, it was. It was. Yeah. I think it was the episode about bear reproduction. It's yeah. worth the wait. I feel like that could be right. That was a while ago. But this is the Hampton Brook Woods Wildlife Management Area. Yeah. (laughs) And I appreciate you choosing this place because I didn't have to go far. That's right. I purposely (laughs) picked some place close to Steve. But we are here right as spring is getting going here in western New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just this morning I went for a walk. I heard some of the first warblers of the year. Uh, Hooded warbler I heard this morning. Yeah. I saw my first hummingbird this morning at a hummingbird feeder. So the woods are just getting green, just leafing out. Oh, we, uh, we got our first few ants in the house. No. <laughs> you know it's spring. Yeah, I think uh, we're up to four now, <laughs> four little guys. So, In this site, it's about 70 acres, mostly forest we're going to be hiking through today. But I checked the website before coming here today, and it yeah. said there also is about 10 acres of wetlands and then four acres of brushland. Yeah, it looks like we're about a... to walk through the wetlands too. Yeah, which uh... and Steve is he kind of makes it a tradition for every episode to wear the worst footwear possible. And, and you know what? I have gum, gum leaf boots, but they're sitting <laughs> right outside the door to my garage. <laughs> they're in the worst place. I just should keep them in my car. He, he's wearing—I don't even know what you would call those—twenty shoes, twenty dollars shoes from Target. So 
but they're replaceable. <laughs> and the trail before us right now, <laughs> there's it's... probably what about 30 yards of standing water. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. We might have to just walk back and forth on this small yeah. section of trail here. So we'll figure it out. But anyway, let's talk about the episode sure. and the topic for today. Yeah. It's bald eagles. Whoa. Okay. Now this was a request from a listener. Mm -hmm. She had sent an article about bald eagle reproduction and the sex ratios of bald eagle nestlings okay. and um, how it's slightly more one sex over the other, but oh. I could not find the paper or the original email. So I was just kind of going off of that recollection of what it was about. Mm -hmm. It led me down this, this path of, well, you know what? Bald eagles are one of those charismatic animals that people want to see. It's our mm -hmm. national bird. But when it comes right down to it, it's a bird I didn't know a whole lot about. Okay. And just doing the initial research, I came across a lot of ideas about bald eagles that I'd heard over the years, new ones that I'd come across, mm -hmm. and just wanted to share what's true, what's not about bald eagles. Am I allowed to share the one thing I know about bald eagles? Of course. Please. Bald eagles, where bald comes from? Yeah. So it's the same root. To where, if you've heard of something being piebald, you're right. Like uh, like white spotted or like lacking pigment. Um, so it's like a white headed eagle. Correct. It does not have to do with lack of hair. Yeah. So it comes from the 1500s, uh, old English word piebald. It usually referred to a horse. You may have heard <laughs> people refer to a piebald horse. And just like you said, having irregular patches of two colors, typically yeah. black and white. I've uh, held a piebald hummingbird before. Really. Mm-hmm. I can post a picture of it. Wow, very yeah. cool. And do you know where piebald came from? I want to get back even further. I don't. So it comes from pie, which referred to magpie. Okay. And bald, which just meant having a white patch or spot. <laughs> B-A-L-D-E. Because think about a magpie. Yeah. Black but, and white. Yeah, they have the that really, there's a huge contrast between the black and the white or the right. dark and the... So white. just like on the bald eagle, you have that huge mm -hmm. contrast between their white head and their brown body. Man, I used to know the scientific name for... for oh, good luck. So, oh, wait, something leucocephalus or... Hell, is it H? You are blowing me away already. I, Two I, points that you... Uh, <laughs> Hels, you drag is out it of Hels your head. Leucocephalus? I don't know what Haliaetis. Okay, Haliaetis, leucocephalus. Leucocephalus. Okay. Do you know where that comes from? Well, leucocephalus would be the white head, right? Cephalus is something to do with head. Very good. Leuco, Leuco is like white. white. Yep. And then the hell, heliatus, I can't, I used to know, but it's been so long. Heli means sea, oh. and aetus means eagle. So, so it's, it's the white-headed sea eagle. You got it. Got it, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> and it does belong to a group called the sea eagles, but it is the only sea eagle native to North America. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll talk about more taxonomy in okay. a little bit. Okay, okay. I had to share it. I had to get no. out everything I knew first. <laughs> <laughs> so now Steve knows nothing for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I can't contribute too much after this. Digging into the bald eagle, it's taking me a long time to do this episode just because this episode has morphed so many times into what it's going to be. And also, I think Bill, he's a proud American and he doesn't want to mess up the episode about bald eagles. So, Exactly. You know me so well. So this episode actually became a roller coaster, mm -hmm. uh, an emotional ro roller coaster in checking my biases and being aware or being on the lookout for other people's biases. So... What it came down to was most of this episode is going to focus, the vast majority of this episode is going to focus on DDT, its impacts on bald eagles, and some people's belief <laughs> that 
the common narrative that if you know about that at all. Right, like Rachel Carson. Right, and, Rachel Carson yeah. and Silent Spring kind right. of ringing the alarm kind of about DDT. The, the birth of ecology and all that. Environmentalism. Environmentalism. Yeah, right. definitely. And some people saying that Rachel Carson is actually uh, someone who should be vilified and that oh. DDT didn't have big, big impacts on the bald eagle. Yeah, well, one of my bosses, he told me he really disliked Rachel Carson. But he, he was the kind of guy who he would be mixing pesticides and stuff. No mask, no gloves. Just <laughs> Was he a libertarian? I don't know, but he had serious uh, health issues. Uh, hmm. Yeah. All right, well, we'll get into that. <laughs> I, I, and I will only point that out because I bet any money it's related to the fact that he was very dangerous when it came to those chemicals. So. Well, you can't know for sure. You don't know what else he's into, though, right? Nope. Cannot know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As I already mentioned, the bald eagle is a bird that nearly everyone can picture, but I'm sure you, as well as I, we know a lot of people who have never seen a bald eagle. Sure. Like, I just had my brother tell me the other day that he wishes he could see a bald eagle, and I keep telling him, just go up to Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge. It's not far from where we are right now. I just realized we didn't exactly pinpoint for people where we are. You just, we said Western New York, but... As we usually say, we are about a half an hour southeast of Buffalo, New York, yep. southeast of Lake Erie, and the woods we're in is typical deciduous mixed. Yep. A lot of maple. Forest. Yep. And we Some even beach. we we got on this because I brought up the trout lily yes. that's around us, which you know the name for the scientific name, but I always forget erythro or. I don't no? remember. It's you gone. used to know it. I did. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting dumber as I get up. <laughs> that's what it's called when you forget stuff. You're dumber. <laughs> Yeah. But we can see the leaves. The leaves of the trout lily are still present, although even though right now it is early May, mm-hmm. most of the blossoms are gone. Yeah. So I found one this morning, but I did find one that already went to seed as well. And we had a teacher, Sandy Geffner, that always said, if you find one that is in flower, don't pick it. Like, don't eat the leaves because it took them maybe seven years to produce that flower. Right, that plant. So you got to pick the ones without flowers, ones that maybe made it six years of the way. (laughs) (laughs) It was just going to flower next year. (laughs) All right, so the bald eagle, we just talked about the range. It is nationwide now from the Mexican border all the way through the U.S. and Canada. They can be seen. Not Canada. Yeah. Come on. Except northern Canada. (laughs) This Uh, is a United States bird. All right. No, no. North America. I wonder if there is a bird that's like just, just so happens to be like the range is the United States. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just for some reason. That rings a bell, though. I swear, like, a bird we've looked at recently. Or, like, it just barely goes into Canada. Yeah. I have a feeling that I've seen range maps where that happens. If I can remember, I'll put it in the the episode notes. (laughs) That should... And then we can petition as a That should be the national bird. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, have you heard the story that Benjamin Franklin didn't like bald eagle as our national yeah, bird because he thought it was a trash bird or something it's one of those stories that i'm like i've heard it i don't know if it's right. true or not but so i did look didn't it he up. want the turkey or something all right so the, okay. the story goes that he didn't like the bald eagle he wanted the turkey right right it's not exactly true so benjamin franklin didn't like the eagle uh, he wrote this in a letter to his daughter and yeah, that's, cr- that's going to make waves <laughs> <laughs> he was criticizing the original eagle design for the great seal okay uh, if you think about the dollar bill on the back of the dollar bill there's that symbol on the right-hand side of the, the eagle kind of in profile. It right. has the shield in front of it. Right. And then the other side is the Illuminati. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so they were debating about the, the great seal, and he didn't like the eagle. And he said it. the design looked more like a turkey. <laughs> and he said the bald eagle is a bird of bad moral character. 
He doesn't get his living honestly. He's too lazy to fish for himself because bald eagles will often steal uh-huh. fish and prey from other animals. Right, right, right. So what Ben Franklin did is he compared the turkey to the bald eagle and saying that the turkey is a much more respectable bird. <laughs> although he's a little vain and silly, he's a bird of courage. Mm. So although Franklin... That's what I think of. I think of Galliforms as being <laughs> bold and... Tell people what Galliforms are. They're like quails, right? Turkeys. Like game birds, Yeah, right? ga- chickens. Yeah. Right? So. so although he felt the turkey's character was superior to the bald eagles, he did not propose it to become one of our symbols. So yeah. he didn't propose it as, as the, the great seal. Well, he didn't want to be the turkey guy, you know what I mean? <laughs> you never want that, to be the turkey guy. That comes from the Ben Franklin Institute in Philly. Hmm. Did we go there when we went to Philly? It's the no. Nat- Natural History Museum. Oh, we went a long time ago. We went a long time yeah, ago to yeah. Philly. Maybe we didn't have time to go to the... But if you right. ever find yourself in Philly, you or anyone listening out there, the Ben Franklin Institute is amazing. It is an amazing yeah. natural history museum. I was too busy thinking about Neutral Milk Hotel that's, to think about... Because that's why we went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> to think about Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk about IDing. Oh, you know what? I, I should talk about the range because that's what I started to talk about before mm-hmm. we got sidetracked. So they can be seen year-round in Alaska, along the east and west coast, and then uh, year-round, they can't be found across the whole continent, usually (laughs) near areas where they can find open water year-round. Okay. So if you look at a range map, technically it covers most of North America, but year-round, their range contracts a lot. We ID them, hopefully all our listeners know, we ID the bald eagle by their white head and tail. Mm Mm-hmm. Dark brown wings and body. I actually did find some websites refer to them as black wings and body, but Hmm. dark brown. Well, this is going to work for most adults, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Give me a second. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then they also have bright yellow feet and their bright yellow bill. Uh, They can be two and a half to three feet long in in height, I'm talking about. They weigh about nine pounds. Hmm. All right. So I looked this up, the average human head, there's some debate, but weighs about 10 pounds. Hmm. So a bald eagle weighs slightly less than most people's heads. Yeah. Interesting. Not Definitely mine, because I have a freakishly large head. <laughs> Their wingspan goes from 6 to 8 feet, and males and females are identical in plumage coloration, but sexual dimorphism is evident in the species in terms of size. Females can be up to a third larger. I was about to say, oh, I didn't know that. And then as I was thinking it, I was like, yeah, the female birds are usually bigger. Often yeah. in raptor species. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, one thing I came across is that a gradient exists from south to north in their range, with eagles in the southern part of the range being the smallest and the ones in the northern part of the range being the largest. Do you remember the rule that this is called? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it does have something to do with, I think it's like the colder temperature there, are, there is. Yeah, if you the can remember lar- the name, I'll buy you diapers. Oh, my gosh. Okay, okay, hold on. <laughs> for your baby, not for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you give me just how it starts? Starts with a B. <laughs> ah, just, t- just do it. Just do Bergman's it. rule. Oh, I never would have got that. No, I, I, I really it. thought it was something else. So that's an ecological principle. It states, within related groups of warm-blooded animals, species tend to be largest in the colder environments and smaller in the warmer ones. Right. So it has something to do with, like, volume to surface area right. ratio? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So an example of this, eagles from South Carolina. So... Pay attention to my numbers here, all right? Because I need you to react appropriately. Okay, okay. They average about seven pounds with a wingspan of about six feet. Okay. In Alaska, where the largest bald eagles are found, one survey of adults showed females that weighed an average of 12 pounds. Oh. Males, nine pounds. 
and females at the high end weigh more than 15 pounds. That's m more than double. Right. Yeah. And they have a wingspan of eight feet. So, wow. I mean, that's a huge... Six feet to eight feet, yeah, double the weight. Yeah. So, online, you're going to find websites that kind of just give, like, a straight measurement for bald eagles. Right. <laughs> Take that with a big grain of salt. Right, right. It depends where you're at, if yeah. it's a male or a female. Yeah, I imagine that th this rule probably applies for most things with such a big range, I would imagine. When I looked up Bergman's rule, there there is a lot of debate, because it does... Of mm -hmm. course, it doesn't hold true for everything. Right, right. But there are many species that it does hold true for. Mm -hmm. One thing I did here once upon a time was that the feathers of a bald eagle weigh more than the skeleton hmm. take that in for a sec because you know birds have they have light bones they have avian bone syndrome yeah, so they <laughs> which is a good thing for birds um so they can fly right we uh, couldn't fly even if we had wings because our skeleton would weigh us down too much sure and i found out this is in fact true the feathers of a bald eagle weigh twice as much as their skeleton their skeleton wow. typically weighs only about half a pound that's wild yeah isn't that crazy yeah so, immature bald eagles are also larger than adults, which okay. I, it struck me as odd, but it's you know, because... You see it, though. I mean, I feel like when I've seen immatures, they seem bigger, and I feel like this is parents. typical, especially yeah. when they're, yeah, yeah, when they're especially young, because, never mind, I was about to say something <laughs> obvious, because I've seen it Let where the young be before... look bigger, and then I was about to say... Yeah, and then they tend to, like, lose the weight or something as they... But <laughs> Let me stop you before yeah, yeah, you say yeah, something wrong. Me. No, stop me, because... <laughs> the larger size is due to the fact that the immatures have longer wings and tail feathers. Oh. Wing and tail feathers. Okay. They do look... I swear, they do look bigger, though. I don't know. <laughs> well, their wings are a little yeah, longer yeah, and their yeah, yeah, tails yeah. are a little longer. All right, so the immatures are dark brown with highly variable white streaking until their fifth year. Hmm. It does tend to get less... They could possibly look fully like an adult in their fourth year, very rarely in their third year when it, they reach sexual maturity. Sexual maturity is typically <laughs> in their fifth year. A four-year-old does look almost like an adult. Those birds are often mistaken for golden eagles. Oh. Okay, golden eagles can often get mistaken for young bald eagles. And golden eagles don't have the white head, right? Correct. Okay. They're similarly sized, but they have a more solid warm brown color mm -hmm. than an immature bald eagle. And they have a reddish golden to golden brown patch on their nape, so like on the, <laughs> the back of their head. Depending on what source you're looking at, some sources do say golden eagles are larger. But again, you have so much variation within the species, male right. and female. When you have some adult bald eagles being double the weight of other ones and two feet right. longer wingspans. yeah. So if you want to be precise, I mean, from what I saw, they're similarly sized. Okay. Although I did see a few sites that said golden eagles tend to be a little bit larger. But the bald eagle does have a larger, more protruding head with a larger beak. It has straighter edged wings, which are held flat. The golden eagles are slightly raised. Mm-hmm. And gold, uh, bald eagles have a stiffer wing beat and leg feathers that don't go all the way down to the toes. Golden eagles, their feathers go all the way down to their toes. Uh, but on again, the toes or just to the toes? To the toes. Mm. These are fine points that most people, like you or I, if we saw a bird in the distance, we'd have yeah. a very hard time yeah. telling them apart. People it's not very that... often that I tackle a bald eagle <laughs> and I'm able to look at its right. legs. Look at its feet! And... <laughs> people that spend more time looking at bald eagles and golden eagles... From afar. They might, the well, they yeah. might be yelling at the whatever they're listening this to on right now, if I'm getting something wrong. <laughs> but the Cornell websites about birds, allaboutbirds.org, mm -hmm. they have a nice comparison page of okay. the bald eagle and the golden eagle where you can click through several <laughs> pictures. I'm not getting into immature golden eagles because those can also be confused with immature bald yeah. eagles, but there's ways to tell them apart. 
All right, now let's back up a little bit to Texan and Texan. So now every, everyone can picture the bald eagle in their head, <laughs> yes. and even compared to something like a white gold head, eagle. brown body, and, and yeah, yeah, wings. Yeah. And they could even picture if they live more southern <laughs> what their bald eagle is like, <laughs> or if they live in Alaska, they know right. what their bald eagle is like. Down south, it's a little smaller, yeah. a little cuter. <laughs> I mentioned that its scientific name is Haliaetus. I always said Haliatus. I don't know. Well, if there's that's two right. e's in there though. Haley. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce A E E T. I don't know. <laughs> I would say Haliaetus. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just make stuff up out of convenience. <laughs> Leucocephalus. Oh, I do have to say, while I'm thinking of it, we have a listener, Monica, who who's sent us many emails. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know. I she, know Monica. She sent us an email uh, back in July of last year. It feels at, like yesterday. After we did our Black Walnut episode, mm. where she gave us this really nice primer on Latin and pronunciation. <laughs> and I keep wanting to share it on an episode, but I want to give it its due. <laughs> and usually the episodes are so packed, we just haven't had time. But yeah. Monica, just know that we see you and sharing this with the audience is in our mind. Yeah. It will happen at some point, just not in this episode. Because <laughs> this is going to be a long one. Oh, gosh. Okay. I, I have four pages of, of notes. Whoa. Yeah. I will say, on that note, if anyone wants to look it up, I think the author is Doyle or Boyle. And the book is called How Birds got their names or how birds are named and it's a really cool book half the book is like the specifics of who gets to name it and and whatnot and then the second half of the book is all the etymology of the name so you can look things up by genus and then from there i think you has like a list of all the specific epithets as well and it just sort of breaks down what each thing means and some of these things the reason i think it's useful is because i used to look up the etymology a lot and this book actually had more, or it was it, it was easier than going online and trying to track down wow. etymology. That's yeah. saying something. Yeah. All right, we'll include that in the episode notes. So I mentioned that the, the Latin name means white-headed sea eagle, and that the bald eagle is the only sea eagle native to North America. The bald eagle's in the family Excipitridae. Which is the same family as something like the red-tailed hawk, Buteo jamaicensis. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're, so in the, they're in the same family, but not yeah. the same genus. No. Right. Yeah. The genus... Haliaetus that does have 10 species. The white-tailed eagle, I should mention, can be found in North America in Greenland, in western Greenland. There's a small population. Saying the bald eagle is the only sea eagle native to North America is not entirely true. You say uh, Greenland? Because, now get this, <laughs> I did this not know this. I didn't, I, there's no way I'm going to know this. Did you know G- Greenland is geographically part of North America? Is it geologists that told us that? It's part of the North American tectonic plate. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But geopolitically, it's part of Europe. <laughs> See, I, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea either. Why would you, right? Yeah, yeah right. Now I know. <laughs> so the bald eagle, it is our national bird, but up until the last 60 years or so, it was generally thought of as vermin. As you know, Americans, we've always had a difficult time living with predators. And we also like guns a lot. <laughs> and shooting and stuff. Our main man, John Eastman, who wrote Birds of... North... Well... Forest and Thicket? Forest and Thicket, yeah. Is it Forest and Thicket? It is, because Swamp and Bog. Unless I'm thinking of Plants. You're thinking of the Plants book. Yeah, see, I don't remember the different ones. So listeners, if you've listened to the podcast a long time, you know we talk about John Eastman and his whole series of books. And we just outed ourselves as not being experts on John Eastman (laughs) publications. (laughs) But he said... I've read them all, but I can't remember the names anymore. He said, images of this idealized predator have evoked strange conflicts in the national psyche. The wild turkey, it seems, would emotionally have been a less troubling choice. (laughs) (laughs) So when Europeans arrived in North America, 
we can't know for sure, but it's estimated that the bald eagle population at that time was somewhere between 300 and 500,000 birds here in North America. Okay. Eastman says that there was a nest on every mile of the Chesapeake Bay shore and every 10 miles of Great Lakes shoreline. <laughs> now, I could find no source for that. And unfortunately, John Eastman never lists his sources, <laughs> right. which is super frustrating. One thing I was about to say is that I was about to say I there is still bald eagles on like Lake Erie. There are, but... There are, but I actually think... I more often see another bird. Their specific epithet is actually the bald eagle's general epithet. Pandion haliatus. Okay, what's that? The osprey? The osprey. Oh. Yeah, I see them more than I see bald eagles. You're showing off a little bit there. But but I think it's the exact same word. So their their species epithet is the bald eagle's generic epithet. I believe so. I'm like 99% sure. Maybe there's a slight tweak to it, Ah. but... Yeah. Did, I, did I say that right? The generic epithet? That doesn't sound right. So I usually say specific and general epithets. Okay, general. But it would be like the genus and the species name, I guess. Right, yeah, yeah. All right, so if, if that is true, this means it was one of North America's most abundant birds. But as early as 1668, so not too long after the, the pilgrims arrived, there were records of bald eagle flocks being shot for hog feed in Maine. Home feed to hogs. Yeah. The thing that is famous for eating anything. (laughs) Homesteaders and ranchers generally hated raptors, believing they killed chickens and livestock, shooting all they could find on principle. States established bounties, and those bounties remained until 1953, when Alaska was the last one uh, to end a bounty. At that time, it was paying $2 per eagle. Jeez. Now, by 1900, due to shooting and habitat destruction, eagle populations had declined throughout their range, and declines continued for the next several decades. So much so that in 1940, Congress passed the Bald Eagle Protection Act, which made it illegal to possess, kill, or sell the bird. But even after nearly 20 years with that protection, population decline worsened. And by 1968, only 417 pairs were breeding in the lower 48. Wow. Bald eagles, at that time, they were heading down the road of the passenger pigeon and the Carolina parakeet, which meant... What? What happened to the passenger pigeon and the Carolina parakeet? Well, they're not around anymore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The word is extinct. I see, I see. <laughs> so, I think they went underground. <laughs> so I want you to kind of keep that in your head, that even after the Bald Eagle Protection Act was put into effect, mm-hmm. the population decline worsened. Okay, So there was this effort to protect them. Right. But then things got worse. Why? Now, some research suggests that major prey and carrion food sources for the bald eagle disappeared with the extinction of the passenger pigeon and the radical decline of bison. Hmm. So they could have gone after passenger pigeons. Right. And imagine when a bison dies, how many eagles could have fed off of that? Yeah. Well, I'm sure maybe you're going to cover this at some point, but do you have in there what their main prey was? Well, it depends on their habitat, but it's okay. usually fish. Okay. Yeah, it does I, definitely depend I on I imagine that. in the 50s, they're probably polluting pretty horribly. Ah, that's my next point. Okay. So there were also environmental contaminants affecting them. Lead from eating shot crippled waterfowl, lead shot, as well as mercury and PCBs. <laughs> but the major factor, as I'm betting most of our listeners are thinking right now, was what chemical? The Rachel Carson one. I'm on <laughs> so Rachel little Carson. I'm on so little sleep that we just talked about it earlier and it already left it's my mind. God. Yeah. DDT. Steve. DDT, right. All right, and tell us what does DDT stand for? <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I could when I read a silent spring, but I can't anymore. Alright, I'm gonna have you read it. Okay. Dichloro diphenyl 
trichloroethane. Very good. Okay. All right. I even broke it up for you there. You know what? I had to take a lot of chemistry classes <laughs> in my graduate work. So, so that's an, a synthetic insecticide, uh, completely man-made, and it had been in use since the 1940s, although it was actually discovered back in the 1800s, but the insecticide capabilities weren't <laughs> discovered until the late 30s. It was first used to kill mosquitoes that spread malaria, lice that transmit typhus, as well as other disease-carrying insects. And it was so successful in World War II that its discoverer was awarded the Nobel Prize. And it really helped to more or less eradicate malaria from Europe, the southern U.S., and parts of India and southern Asia. DDT is typically applied as a white, smoky mist. It's poorly soluble in water, so good news, it doesn't contaminate waterways, but Bad news, being poorly soluble, means it persists for a long time. Oh, yeah. More bad news, it's highly fat-soluble. Oh, What does that mean? I mean, that means it's stored in the fat, stored in the bodies of the things that it gets into. So bio... Accumulation. There you go. Tell people, what is bioaccumulation? Well, what you just said. Yeah, essentially. It's just a buildup of certain things. You're not pooping it out. Yeah. Or peeing it out, Right. Right. I heard THC was fat soluble or something. So this was back when I worked at a car wash. They were like, oh, man, this one guy, he used to smoke so much. And now he's losing a bunch of weight. And it's like, I'm telling you, I bet he gets like high just from like <laughs> being released from when he's uh, like he's been losing all this weight. I'm like, I don't know if that is a thing or not. But We're not going to look at it. <laughs> Let me Google it really quick. All right. So related to bioaccumulation, Steve, tell people what is biomagnification? I almost thought it was the same thing. Is it just where... The organic matter in the environment has a much higher amount of whatever you're interested in looking at compared to the environment itself. Or so, is that, did you follow what I was trying to say? I did, but you're wrong. But that's wrong. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let me explain. Uh, at least it's not what I'm thinking. Okay. We used to do a game uh, when I used to work at the nature center with kids where we'd have them stand in like a, a triangle shape. So mm-hmm. you'd have uh, maybe 10 kids standing at the base of the triangle. Behind them were nine kids and then eight kids and so on. Yeah, yeah. You'd give all the kids, except the kid at the very apex of the, the pyramid, okay. bandanas. Okay. And this was a food chain, more or less. So oh. at the bottom, you'd have the producers. You'd have plants, right? Right, right, right. And we'd I, say... I think I might have figured it out at this if point. If there's We're, some chemical, yeah. we would just say, okay, the kid's at the bottom. You've been eaten. Hand your bandana up to the people right. behind you. So it's the lower down in the food pyramid you are. Or, or trophic level is whatever. The trophic levels, yeah. yeah. As you move up the trophic levels, you're accumulating more and more of right. this particular chemical. Because the animals low on the food chain, they've mm-hmm. bioaccumulated a certain amount. Right. And if an eagle, for instance, is eating many fish, right. you know, that's going to get magnified e- even more. Yep. So it's like the environment has a little bit, then like the fish have a little bit more, then the eagles have a little bit more. Right. And then um, the concentrate. pigs, and then the pigs have even more because they were eating the eagles. So <laughs> the people eating the bald eagles, they get <laughs> and the then the people it. eating the bacon from the pigs. <laughs> yeah. So the standard story goes, you know, if you believe the mainstream media, bald eagles, their decline continued. That steep decline, even though the Bald Eagle Protection Act was in place, that that big decline that continued was due to DDT, and it's a story that I've learned some call into question. So after World War II large-scale agricultural use of DDT began. So prior to World War II, and during World War II, it was really used mostly to get rid of insects that cause disease. Mm -hmm. But then people realized, hey, why don't we spray this on plants, get rid of the insects on those too. Subsequent research demonstrated its negative impacts on the reproduction of certain bird species. Fish-eating birds were most vulnerable, as we just talked about, since their prey concentrated large doses of toxic residues in their tissues. Exposure to DDT 
caused the eggshells of birds like bald eagles, osprey, peregrine falcons to be too thin. Now, many sources, I listened to several podcasts about bald eagles, read a lot of articles, a lot of them said that due to DDT exposure and exposure to other, other chemicals, they had thin eggshells. So when they sat on their eggs to incubate them, or oh. they put their breast on there to incubate them, mm-hmm. that the eggs broke. I was going to say, I, I was actually, I knew about the thin eggshells, yeah. but I actually never knew anything beyond the thin eggshells. So I didn't even know what, I'm like, were they coming out prematurely or, you know, is it required that they have a thick shell? So it's, they built up strength trying to get out. I don't know what, I don't know what the thinness uh, did. I've always just known about DDT, thinning eggshells, yeah. and somehow that. The vast majority of sources say that's what caused the bald eagles mm-hmm. and other species to be unable to reproduce. So crushing their own eggs. They'd be laying eggs, but yeah, which wow. is horrible, right? Yeah. But I did find some sites that said, just a couple, that said eggs could fail to hatch and really never develop because the thin shells would cause excess moisture loss and chick death before the oh. chicks could even you know develop fully. Okay. Because that is one reason that birds have these hard shells is to keep the moisture inside. Yeah. Right? So populations plummeted. But there were two factors that allowed bald eagles to turn the corner. One was the passage of the Endangered Species Act in 1973. That funded reintroduction programs and also the establishment of bald eagle refuges in key habitat areas. That began to address the bird's peril. But the most important factor was DDT being banned in the U.S. in 1972. That's what enabled bald eagles to turn that crucial corner. No DDT meant no eggshell thinning. Sounds like government overreach. Both points sound like government overreach. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about people that say that. And you already alluded to this. How did DDT get banned? Rachel Cars. (laughs) No. (laughs) Silent Spring. Well, we're going to talk about this. So Silent Spring, written by Rachel Carson, came out in 1962. Hopefully, most of our listeners have at least heard about it. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping many of them have read it. Have you ever read it's, it? It's, yeah, it's a historical book. I yeah. feel like it's worth reading. And I feel it's very science-based. It's very yeah. rooted in science. I also felt, and not that I don't think this is the right word to use. You have a better degree for this. I almost want to say the read was entertaining in a way. Yes, she, so is, if, if she was a good writer. She's at first and yeah. foremost a writer to, right. to entertain people about Like, like I'm not going to say she's like a... Um, She's kind of like an Aldo Leopold, but not like an Edward Abbey. You know what I mean? Yes. Definitely. It's different. She's it, much yeah. more in the Aldo Leopold realm. Yeah. A scientist he, writing he, about nature. He was le- she's more sciencey than he was, but they both, I don't know. Maybe I was just reading them both at the same time. No, but, I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. She talks he, a lot more about studies. And, he also brought up a lot of concern, like environmental concerns, definitely. too. So but maybe that's why I do group Sand them. Sand County Almanac. I mean, those two books, Sand County Almanac and The Silent Spring, are the reason our environmental movement looks the way it does. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Silent Spring, it drew attention to the negative effects of chemical pesticides that at the time were a largely unregulated part of U.S. agriculture. Mm -hmm. There were regulations, but they really dealt more with fraud, like punishing companies putting out pesticides that didn't do what they say they do. Right, right. And then there Um, probably was regulations on how many bald eagles you could feed to your pigs. (laughs) But I don't think there was. (laughs) But not not about protecting the bald eagles. (laughs) So those regulations dealt more with fraud than safety. Like in 1954, they passed the Pesticides Control Amendment. That was one of the first to deal with safety, but that really just dealt with pesticide residues on food. Oh, okay. okay. It's difficult to overstate the post-World War II attitude of enthusiasm for scientific breakthroughs. <laughs> like, Remember, this is the time that people thought we were going to be living on the moon in 50 years, right? right? And just this prevalence of the idea that more must be better if it's 
comes from science, right, uh, right? Especially toward the use of pesticides. There's YouTube videos. I'll post one on the our notes page. Videos of trucks driving through neighborhoods spraying clouds of DDT in 1946, and kids yeah. playing through the clouds like parents telling them, "Go play." That was. <laughs> Because for a time, before people figured out what caused polio, mm-hmm. um, they wondered if it was carried by insects. <laughs> so DDT was part of the effort to stop that. But Silent Spring and its well-researched documentation of impacts caused a shift in global environmental consciousness. One of the people that we love, naturalist David Attenborough, he said Silent Spring was probably the book that changed the scientific world the most after The Origin of the Species by Darwin. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I talk about in my class is... Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, that was really what kicked off the environmental movement. Prior to that, that word, environmentalist, really wasn't in wide use. People were more conservationists. Okay. Because it, before then, people like John Muir and, and people that, you know, around in the early 1900s were focused more on, we need to save wild places because if we don't have them, it's going to reduce our quality of life. Right. But once Rachel Carson came along with her talk of pesticides and how is it impacting wildlife and people... Mm-hmm. The shift went from a concern for our quality of life to a concern for our really our actual life. <laughs> <laughs> like too much of this could kill right, you, right? right? right. Losing a, a wild area is isn't going to kill you, most likely. But right, right, overuse of pesticides possibly could. Right, and I, I think when they were talking about because I think maybe it was Aldo Leopold that talked about the dead forests of Germany. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like that was more of it was like more of like a, a rhetorical argument for do we really want to become like them right. you know like exactly. we could people are still living perfectly fine in germany but do we really want to become that whereas rachel carson's like we're at risk here you know right. and, yeah <laughs> things are dying right 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 and, and there's always been a connection between the two and the more people recognize that the better yeah. so but the 1960s that's when that shift happened some people went from being conservationists to calling themselves environmentalists mm-hmm. Carson cited early anecdotal reports of various birds either dying of acute DDT poisoning or experiencing reproductive problems. No bird singing meant a silent spring. Mm -hmm. Her book drew the ire of chemical companies, and a campaign was waged to discredit Carson and her work. Was was Carson? She was... Was she a scientist? She was. She was. I couldn't remember. Um, It's been a long time since I've... But her work focused mostly on the ocean. Okay. Yep. But first and foremost, she really was a writer. Okay. Okay. Carson and her publisher, they had done their due diligence. They had the scientific chapters of Silent Spring reviewed by relevant scientists before the publication. And the chemical company's efforts actually backfired. Their efforts drew attention to Silent Spring and pesticide safety, probably Mm -hmm. more than would have happened if they had just kind of let Silent Spring (laughs) be published. Have you ever heard of the Streisand effect? Yeah. (laughs) Where she was like, don't take pictures of my house, right? Right. So someone took a picture of her house to demonstrate erosion on California cliffs and her lawsuit drew way more people because they said before her lawsuit something like four or five people had sought out that picture yeah. and then after her lawsuit something like 400,000 people did so <laughs> it's kind of a funny effect mm-hmm. so it became a national issue and it led to a congressional review of pesticide hazards and the release of a report on pesticides by uh, JFK his president's science advisory committee <laughs> and Eventually, those efforts led to the banning of DDT for agricultural use in the U.S. Notice I said agricultural use in the U.S. in 1972. It's tough to argue that Silent Spring didn't play a major role in the DDT ban. Like if Silent Spring never came out, it's tough to say, oh, DDT would have been banned anyway. She did draw attention to it. But I want you to put a pin in that. But I feel like bringing things 
into the public eye. Like, let's say you're in court, right? You can't say, a silence, but a silent spring. You know, you're making important laws or whatever. But sometimes you do, like, that stuff makes it to the floor because the public is now concerned. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And the president's science advisory committee, JFK got that committee together because he instructed them, you need to look into Miss Carson's claims. (laughs) And the people on this committee were not extreme people on one end or the other. These were scientists working in the field, (laughs) really academics. Yeah. And they all said that what she talks about in that book is backed by science. That is what the science shows. Wow. And now there were many points at which they only had anecdotal records or initial studies. So it was hard to say for sure. I mean, I think the value in her work was that she put a lot of these things together, right? In a very um, human-readable way. And she was very moderate in her claims. Like, a lot of people say Rachel Carson said DDT causes cancer in humans. She did not say that. (laughs) She said DDT, some studies have shown that it causes cancer in lab animals. So we should be concerned that, hey, it is possible. Right. Not that it does that it definitely does. She just said, well, these are what initial studies are looking at, so maybe we should think about that. Yeah, and we appreciate that, Bill and I. (laughs) So over the next couple decades, bald eagle numbers increased. By the 1980s, they'd increased so much that they were over 10,000. Wow. In 1994, officials downgraded the continental status from endangered to threatened. And in 2007, it was removed from the federal endangered and threatened list altogether. The latest population report from 2020 found there's now 316,000 birds living just in the lower 48. That doesn't even include Alaska. Oh. That's more than quadruple the population (laughs) that was counted. I think the one before that was maybe from 2010, something like that. So numbers are definitely increasing, and they continue to increase with birds expanding into more of their historic range. Can you give that number one more time? 316,000. Wow. That's a lot. Right. So from 1980, they went from 10,000, around 10,000 birds. From 800 to 10,000 to 316,000 in 30 years. Yeah. That's good. It's crazy. Now, let's talk about the controversy. I'm going to do this in a nutshell. Okay. In an eggshell. So (laughs) people who are, you know what? Before I get into the controversy, we should talk about boots. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Steve right now is really wishing that he had brought his pair of gum leaf boots. I am. <laughs> and did you know, Steve, that gum leaf boots are made from 85% natural rubber? I did, <laughs> although it's been a long time since we've talked about that. <laughs> and it's why they can flex over how many times? Over a million. Without a crack, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Competitive brands, they use between 25 and 50% rubber mixed with plastics and synthetics. So you'll buy several pairs of those models to equal one pair of Gumleaf mm-hmm. USA boots. And those will probably look bad, too. The Gumleaf <laughs> boots, on the other hand, they got a lot of cool colors and designs. And you know, I've listened to functional, some, you know? some past episodes. Yeah. And you refer to the Gumleaf boots as, they look pretty good. I think they do. <laughs> I don't know if pretty good is a good way to... Wait, wait, wait. They're not bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it just always jumped out at me. Pretty They're not, not terrible. <laughs> I like them. I think they look great. Now I like them. <laughs> now the good news is, listeners to our podcast, patrons of our podcast, I should yeah, say, patrons yeah. of our podcast, they can get free shipping. Mm-hmm. If you go to gumleafusa.com, order yourself a pair of gumleaf boots. If you go 
to our Patron page on Patreon.com, mm -hmm. we have the secret code to yeah. enter to get There's free There's a post shipping. that's locked away unless you're a patron. That's right. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Gumley, for supporting our podcast. Yeah. All right. So now on with the controversy. So, Gumleaf, I'm going to need a pair for my car and for my garage <laughs> and probably please. a couple more pairs. Because <laughs> we've made it about, like, what, 40 <laughs> yards into this preserve, uh -huh. and we can't yeah. go much farther. All right. People who argue against the accepted narrative they typically make one or more of the following claims. And there are others, but these show up the most. Number one, that Rachel Carson is responsible for DDT being banned, and she's therefore responsible for all the malaria deaths that could have been prevented by DDT. Mm. Number two, banning DDT was unnecessary and even wrong because it prevented DDT's continued use in fighting malaria worldwide. And then third, DDT wasn't responsible, or at least not significantly responsible, for reproduction problems in birds like bald eagles. Hmm. So we're going to kind of take these down one at a time. But let's talk about malaria. How does malaria spread? Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, very good. <laughs> it causes flu-like symptoms and death in severe cases. It's endemic to a broad geographic band around the equator and is caused by single-celled microorganisms of the plasmodium group. Hmm. It's spread exclusively through bites of infected Anopheles mosquitoes, the genus Anopheles. Anopheles. Yes. Okay. You know what Anopheles means? It sounds Greek. Not beneficial. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great scientific name. <laughs> it was once common in the U.S., malaria, but we eliminated it from most parts of the country in the early 20th century, not using DDT because that hadn't been discovered as a pesticide yet, mm -hmm. but using vector control programs where we combined monitoring and treating infected people, draining wetland breeding grounds, and then other changes to water management, as well as advances in sanitation. And get this, greater use of glass windows and screens. Oh, okay. Just keeping mosquitoes out of the house. Got it, right? got it. DDT and other means eliminated malaria from the remaining pockets in the southern U.S. in the 1950s. <laughs> the rest of the world was another story, but we'll get into that. So let's talk about the first claim. Rachel Carson is responsible for DDT being banned, and she's therefore all the deaths from malaria since that time can be laid at her feet. Rachel Carson never called for the banning of DDT or any other pesticide. Yeah, but didn't JFK say, take her word for it. Let's ban well, it. I, I mean, some people do argue she's still responsible, right? <laughs> right? But she was very clear that the main thesis of her book was that pesticides can have consequences for organisms beyond their intended target. So let's figure out the least amount we can use. She called for a measured approach, not for banning anything. The approach should admit that technology doesn't provide us with magic, but with complex options. Mm. She quoted one entomologist saying, Practical advice for pesticide application should be, spray as little as you possibly can, not spray to the limit of your capacity. <laughs> she never denied that there were beneficial uses of pesticides, especially in combating insect-borne diseases. She said they'd been proven effective and were morally necessary. So, I mean, I can kind of see where that's coming from because I feel like if if I was someone applying this pesticide, I'd be like, just use the whole thing. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Well, there, Even less insects? That, you know. There were records in her book of aerial spraying that happened in mm -hmm. the 30s, the 40s, where planes would be dropping pesticides on fields, but also suburbs and towns. Oh, yeah. Without people even being alerted, because at the time, people were just like, oh, it's made by science. It's okay. <laughs> so I think it's difficult, though, to lay those deaths at her feet when she actually said that using pesticides to fight disease was morally necessary. Yeah. And people who are attacking her and the ban, they're oversimplifying it. 
Because notice, she made the distinction that it was morally necessary in combating insect-borne diseases. That's different than using them for agriculture. Mm -hmm. And using them for agricultural purposes caused problems, more problems, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So banning, the second claim, banning DDT was unnecessary and even wrong because it prevented DDT's continued use in fighting malaria worldwide. Detractors, they act as though government officials, like you just said, mm-hmm. were snatching the DDT spray wands out of malaria fighters' hands and shouting, Rachel Carson says you're killing birds! <laughs> but in fact, even before Silent Spring was published, DDT use was already waning worldwide, and a big factor was insect resistance. Oh. So can you, I'm putting you on the spot here, can you quickly explain how that works, insect well, resistance? Right, so it's like... DDT only killed a certain percentage of the mosquitoes. Right. No pesticide is going to be 100% yeah. effective. So, and this is important when it comes to understanding selection, is that evolution can invent new things. Right. But what it usually does is it acts on the existing variation within the population. So there were already some mosquitoes that were resistant to DDT. And those are the ones that reproduced. So their offspring are the ones that ended up becoming more prominent right right so evolution worked on the existing variation so now you have a bunch of ddt resistant mosquitoes right and like that's just in theory what happened i don't bill knows the story i don't know the story (laughs) so so in the places where it was first used such as sri lanka ddt ceased to be useful within a decade today the world health organization has a list of 12 recommended pesticides for use in combating malaria one of which is ddt Hmm. furthermore when some critics of the ban talk about it they mentioned when it was banned in 1972 but then working backwards they count the malaria deaths since 1972 and they come up with claims that the ban was the greatest ecological genocide in the known history of man the author michael Crichton, who wrote jurassic park yeah in his 2004 bestseller state of fear he had a uh, one of his characters say banning ddt killed more people than hitler but keep in mind that his this book, State of Fear, basically calls into question uh, climate science. Mm. And then he has this whole um, afterward kind of point by point saying why he doesn't believe kind of the consensus on climate change. And I just I had to put one in because I know you'll love this. Mm-hmm. He says, there's no evidence that my guess about the state of the world 100 years from now is any better or worse than anyone's guess. We can't assess the future, nor can we predict it. These are euphemisms. We can only guess. An informed guess is just a guess. <laughs> so tell me why that's wrong yeah sometimes people are just too stupid to realize how stupid they are and it's the mistake of feeling like you're an expert or more than the actual you're an expert more than the experts right and especially when the experts are looking at big data things that i will say th- this is one of those things where maybe this is totally off base but there's tools that we have that make an impossible problem possible, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of math problems that I could never solve without putting pencil to paper and working through the really long process and getting to an answer that there's no way I could have just sat down and thought for a while, you know what? (laughs) The answer's four pi over whatever, you know? You never could have gotten there without doing the hard work of actually doing the research, doing the calculations, all that. But then you have these people that just sit in their rocking chair, right? Or their armchair, right? These armchair uh, scientists. Right. And they're like, you know what? I thought about it for an afternoon. <laughs> I watched this YouTube video. And, and there is no global warming. <laughs> so sometimes I like to think about math because it's a very simple way of thinking about how you literally could not have solved that math problem. I mean, there are some geniuses out there or whatever. But like, 
you went through the steps, you know, you did the calculations and you were able to find the answer. And that's not something you could just could have sat on your couch and done in your head. Right. So, yeah. And he was... And scientists are doing that all day. <laughs> so. He was referring specifically here to climate models. Okay, yeah. And he was trying to make the point that there's a lot of variation between climate models, so they're all worthless. And their guess is just as good right. as my guess, which is really, it's a false equivalency. Which but, I've, I've read papers on climate models. Yeah. And what they'll do is they'll be like, oh, this is the most extreme version of this model and the most extreme version of this model. And even then, <laughs> they're like, we see a pattern. So... It's literally their job to try to account for that type of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So, also, <laughs> when I think of Michael Crichton, I always just think of Dino DNA, <laughs> which I know that was the movie, right? Right. Yeah. But I, I don't know if that is actually in his book. I don't know either. I, <laughs> but I, I, I know I know his his books are great for sounding very scientific. Like he does a really good job making science fiction sound like nonfiction. Real. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So. And I didn't mean to get off on kind of the <laughs> right, climate right, right. thing there, but... But I got to say dino, dino DNA, dino which DNA. is always a good thing. But it is instructive because it shows us the type of people that these arguments are coming from. Yeah. And, you know, I debated when researching this episode, do I want to even get into this? Because I don't like giving these kind of arguments oxygen. But I found it interesting. Yeah. Because it did teach me more about DDT and, and the story of bald eagles. and. But Bill, you weren't around back then when <laughs> Rachel Carson was writing about this stuff, so there's no way you could actually know about it. So, well, <laughs> And that's I'm, the recent yeah. history. You know, I'm just making it all up. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I feel oh, like... That, the... Sorry, I, I brought that one up because that one's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> like, and I, I talked about something very recent, but like, know? how could you know about something that happened so long ago? Yeah. <laughs> now, I feel oh, the, the huge point we, we have to make is the DDT ban was not a complete ban. Notice the U.S. banned it for agricultural purposes because it was the massive use of DDT for agricultural purposes hmm. that was driving insect resistance hmm. more than anything else. Global restrictions, those didn't come until 2001, and even that wasn't an actual ban. Whoa. Those restrictions covered a number of pesticides that included DDT, but Again, that was mostly for agricultural uses. DDT was <laughs> never banned for disease control. It remained in use for anti-malaria spraying until affordable substitutes could be found. And it's still in use today in some parts of the world. Right. I was going to say, I, I could imagine if the issue was resistance, they would put it on like a, a cycle. Like, so it's right. like, all right, we're not using DDT now, we're using this one. And then we'll use DDT again. Right. Yeah. And that's it's what often happens. Mm-hmm. So I know you've listened to the podcast Skeptoid before. It's been a while, but yeah, I've, it's a fun one. So, it, But it surprised me because Skeptoid is a, a podcast that I've held in pretty high regard. It's, it's changed my mind and given me a more nuanced attitude sort toward things like fracking and sure. nuclear power. But can I tell you why I can't listen to it anymore? Yeah, go ahead. It's because his like radio salesman voice... <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think like he's tr- he's lying to me. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, and I, regardless of what he's saying is true or false, it's I have such a hard time. Now, I used to listen to him because the episodes are so short and so quick to go through. You can listen to like, you know, 20 episodes a day and not a problem at all. Give us an example of what he sounds like. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> you're listening to you're, Skeptoid. You're listening to Skeptoid. <laughs> Brian Dunning. And, yeah, I don't know. Right. So I, I've had several people listen to it and they've made the same call that you have. It's like, boy, right. his voice is a little hard to, to take. Yeah. There's way worse voices out there. There is, but, totally. And, um, and he does a lot and of And like I said, work. I used to be really hooked on the podcast, but eventually got to the point where I just couldn't, for some reason, something clicked, right? Mm-hmm. And then I just couldn't go back to it so easily. Well, I was surprised because I found a episode he did on DDT, and 
he took this route saying Rachel Carson. At first he said Rachel Carson in Silent Spring said that DDT caused eggshell thinning. That was not in Silent Spring. Oh, uh, really? That wasn't discovered till after Silent Spring. Oh, see, uh, even I didn't know that. I read the book and I couldn't remember He said it that was, was her main afterwards. thesis in the book. You know what? That's so funny because I thought it was in the book, but there's a chance that there was a foreword or an afterword or whatever uh, that might have brought up a lot of this stuff and eggshell thinning yeah. and all that. But And I just associate it with the book, but... I don't know. And then he went on in, in the episode talking about insect resistance, and he said, well, it's not really a thing because he quoted a study where insects, mosquitoes that were resistant, something like 60% of them still died as opposed to 80% before. So he said, so it still works great. But one science writer did a kind of a takedown of the episode and kind oh. of did a point-by-point rebuttal. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the study he used, it wasn't even on malaria mosquitoes. Because <laughs> remember, it's that just one genus. He right, said it's right. a completely different kind of mosquitoes. Oh. I, so, I will say, w- one thing about Skeptoid is that I think it's a yearly episode. He goes back and he, like, talks about all the stuff he got wrong. Now, I don't know if he did that he, for he this did. Oh, he, he did. He made two corrections. Okay. But there's still a lot of stuff in there. Like, at one point, he actually says, I've reviewed the material, and in my opinion, I don't think uh, DDT would significantly cause eggshell thinning. And to me, I'm like, well, you're not a biologist. You're, <laughs> right. You're not a scientist. Yeah. Like, it is a fear that I even have with us where we both are very familiar with science. I specifically work on plant genomics, but we talk about a lot of stuff. We do. That we don't not, know about. <laughs> it's not my specialty, not your specialty. But um, we but, make an effort to yeah. use research that's out there. Right, right. I don't. I try not to make my own calls. Right, 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 right. right? I'm sure sometimes I do without even noticing. Right, and I think the nature of Skeptoid is he's trying to say this. There's reason to believe this, or there's reason not to believe. Like, he's making judgments, you know what I mean? So maybe the nature of the podcast would set him up to get things wrong more often than what we do. Because we're a little soft. We're a little bit more soft with our claims, I think. And we're willing to accept a little wiggle room. Yeah. You know, maybe it's this or maybe it's this. But I find that he does run into a lot of problems when he looks into environmental issues because it Mm. is so complex, Yeah. right? And it's so hard to make one single claim. But he went on to talk about how the banning of DDT, he did say it was only banned in the U.S., but he went on this tirade saying that, well, environmental organizations in the U.S., they've prevented DDT from being used in other countries Hmm. uh, because these environmentalists they don't want to see any pesticides and chemicals being used. And he just went on this tirade about... Wait, does the U.S. have the power to stop other countries? Well, maybe they but do. But he's I saying these environmental groups have access to funders, and the funders aren't going to fund DDT use mm. in these other countries. He, he goes on to this I without see. really providing any backup hmm. for this. Interesting. And we're going to talk about that. While some environmental groups do lobby for a total ban... Many do support the right to spray DDT to control mosquito populations. One group that gets mentioned regularly as opposing DDT is Greenpeace, but that's not their position. I mean, and Greenpeace is pretty far along the spectrum of right, environmental right. groups. Many people consider them somewhat radical. A terrorist organization. <laughs> but they actually say, we support the continued use of DDT in malarial control programs where there are no effective alternatives. Sorry, I said terrorist organization. <laughs> well, some people I, would consider them eco-terrorists. Like I've heard of eco-terrorism. I also really like the monkey wrench gang, so maybe oh, I'm yeah. an eco-terrorist. <laughs> you have sympathies. Uh-huh. So let's talk about what, what really happened globally. So in 1955, the World Health Organization launched the Global Malaria Eradication Program because they'd had good impacts over the past 
10 years with DDT and even before that with those vector control programs we talked about. Mm-hmm. But they soon discovered that eradication was logistically impossible due to insect resistance and other factors. <laughs> they had their most success in areas where it wasn't so warm all year long, where malaria incidence was medium to low. Yeah. But these areas along the equator where incidence is really high, they had a much harder time. This led to waning support for the program, and the WHO suspended the program in 1969. The program succeeded in eliminating malaria only in areas with high socioeconomic status, well-organized healthcare systems, and relatively less intensive or seasonal malaria transmission. So most of Europe, North America, Australia, Northern Africa, and the Caribbean, they've eliminated malaria, as well as parts of South America, Asia, in southern africa oh i guarantee disneyland eliminated malaria because when <laughs> i was think? there years ago i don't think i even saw so like a one single mosquito, bird yeah. yeah i don't think i saw a bird or a mosquito or anything <laughs> no insect <laughs> but it, it was actually kind of creepy and for, for all i know maybe i was there at a weird time and there just didn't happen to be <laughs> birds but i swear i looked out the window and there was no birds at all <laughs> couldn't see anything. someone from disney's coming after us <laughs> but But malaria hasn't been eliminated globally, and it remains a persistent health threat. So even today, uh, the WHO reports over 600,000 deaths a year, many of them children in sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, wow. So in these places, mosquitoes rest indoors on walls or ceilings, and a single dose of DDT sprayed on those surfaces can repel or kill them for months. But it's generally agreed that 80% of households have to be sprayed, which can be difficult to impossible to do in rural areas. (laughs) And then DDT often gets sold on the black market. People end up using it for agricultural purposes. So what is intended for fighting malaria is diverted into agricultural purposes since it's banned for agricultural purposes. Now, The Lancet, which is uh, a well-known... Well-known journal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they famously had to retract... (laughs) uh, The uh, autism and uh, vaccine connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what was that guy's name? Andrew Wakefield. Yeah, Wakefield. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So it's such a shame that that's what the Lancet (laughs) is known known for, for, at least by me, is that... uh... (laughs) So they said, fortunately, DDT is far from the only tool... Hold on a second. But they retracted it. You know what I mean? They retracted it. (laughs) They made up for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said the pesticide is far from the only tool in the public health arsenal. They noted that indoor spraying with DDT likely helped lower malaria rates in some parts of Africa. But they also noted that the disease's incidence has also declined in regions where DDT has not been in use because of the wide distribution of mosquito nets treated with other insecticides and designed to fit over beds. The review said DDT still has a little role to play and people in the malaria control community would be reluctant to have it taken away. But definitely nets are the most important tool. And there's yep. actually a vaccine in development right now. Just within the past few years, it's come out and it's they're doing millions of vaccinations in, in certain countries in Africa right now Whoa. with the vaccine. So before I look into the last claim, I do want to point out, and I think I'll have you tell people, Steve. So for those that don't know, what is a libertarian? <laughs> so in, liber- in 10 words or less. <laughs> right. So I think they like the idea of marrying children <laughs> and not paying taxes and being a sovereign citizen and policing themselves. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> They just don't like being told what to do, I guess. Uh, they, they don't like the idea of, like, a, basically 
anything a government does is overreach more or very less. limited government yeah or and, no and, government and i'm i'm no expert on libertarians this is just a general thing i've listened to a lot of libertarians talk about their ideas and stuff mm-hmm. but i wouldn't call myself a libertarian so i wouldn't think so either <laughs> yeah. but would you agree that it's funny because sometimes libertarians some of their views the libertarians that listen to our podcast they just turned it off after i said <laughs> they like to marry children or whatever steve was joking <laughs> hopefully it's not too late but isn't it funny how would you agree that some of their views are considered kind of like right side of the spectrum, political oh, spectrum, and some are considered left? For sure. For sure. So, like, I think generally, they, I think they typically the, like the idea of recreational drug use, which is something that you see more on the left, but they also like less regulations for other things like environmental and stuff like that. And that's something you usually see on the right. So there are overlaps with both, yeah, with like both the right and the left. So And looking back... I will say, I think a lot of libertarians are actually... Rightly, <laughs> it does seem that way. Yeah, I, yes, yeah. I would at agree. least a lot of the ones that that I feel like I've come across. But and when I would come across, you know, different people online. This is not a politics podcast. I, I'm just saying, like, take a lot of the stuff that I've said with a grain of salt because uh, I'm not speaking with confidence. About right. A lot of it. And I'll say to the listeners out there that I kind of debated back and forth again about whether to talk about this because this is kind of delving into politics but it is definitely connected to the bald eagle and the story of the bald eagle and i think it's important to point out that when i would look into people talking about rachel carson is responsible for malaria deaths and mm-hmm. that the ddt ban was unwarranted usually when you followed these back you would end up at some article some author that is connected to some libertarian think tank some sure. anti-regulation outfit who just don't like regulations, especially yeah. environmental regulations. Right. And often these... But you know, the, the market will settle it, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they believe a lot right, of the time. Right. And a, a lot of these organizations had ties to anti-climate change views, mm-hmm. even views that question the harmfulness of secondhand smoke. Mm. All right, so we're going to wrap up the episode by looking at the, <laughs> <On that note. laughs> the, the last claim that people make that DDT didn't actually cause eggshell thinning, or at least to a significant degree. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned, Silent Spring did not make that connection. That connection came later. But the bandwagon really got rolling with two studies in the 60s. The first study was from England, published in Nature in 1967. It claimed that the incidence of broken eggs in nests of three birds, peregrine falcons, Eurasian sparrowhawks, and golden eagles, had increased considerably since 1950. It compared eggshells collected before 1946 with eggshells collected after, and they found that post-1946 eggshells weighed 19% less in peregrines. Sparrowhawks, their eggs weighed 24% less. Golden eagles were only 8% less. It sounds like it can't just be the shell where the weight is lost, right? Like, there's got to be... Because if you were saying... If the moisture was getting out... They're just weighing the eggshells. They're not weighing the eggs. Oh, the, I'm sorry. Yeah. I missed that part. Yeah, they're just weighing eggshells. Okay. Good. Some other people may have missed that too. The authors noted some physiological change evidently followed a widespread and pervasive environmental change somewhere around 1945 to 47. And for the raptor species in the study, the following factors were correlated. Frequency of egg breakage, decrease in eggshell weight, decline in breeding population and exposure to persistent organic pesticides. Those results were bolstered by a second study a year later in science 
that looked at peregrine falcons, bald eagles, and ospreys. It said catastrophic declines of these three raptor species in the U.S. are accompanied by decreases of up to 19% in eggshell thickness that began in 1947, <laughs> right after World War II, when DDT started to be used for agriculture. They were identical to phenomena found in Britain. They claimed that the eggshell thinning coincided with the introduction of chlorinated hydrocarbon pesticides like DDT, and they concluded that those compounds were harming certain species of birds at the tops of contaminated ecosystems. But the researchers still just had a correlation between DDT and eggshell right. thinning. So they did what good scientists should do. They experimented. So a study at the USDA fed Japanese quail a diet laced with DDT. This was published in Nature in 1969, and it found that the quail dosed with DDT had eggshells that were about 10% thinner than those of undosed quail. Not a big difference, 10%. Mm -hmm. But the findings were eventually overturned because the quail in the study had been fed a low-calcium diet. Oh. I don't know why. I never said. Right. But when the quail were fed normal amounts of calcium, the thinning effect disappeared. <laughs> Studies published in poultry science, looking at mostly chicken eggs, found that they were almost completely unaffected by high doses of DDT. Interesting. No, but keep in mind, those were quail and chickens. Right. Which... Were, did they previously have you did you say that they had seen effects in those birds those other studies were raptors and no okay okay but subsequent studies uncovered that it might not be ddt per se that was damaging to eggshells but a ddt metabolite known as dde something it breaks down into oh okay, okay? the most persuasive study came out in 1975 dde induced eggshell thinning in the american kestrel it compared findings in the lab <laughs> to field results Kestrels are small falcons, and the authors, they started by stating that the correlation between DDE and North American raptor eggs and eggshell thickness is clear, but it doesn't provide a causal relationship, since other chemicals or factors could be involved. Aren't they also in a different order than eagles? Yes. Because this falcoforms or something? They're different, yeah. Falco-sempervirens or something? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They, they have a cool name. That's why it stuck out. But yeah, I think it is a different order. But you'd think like falcons aren't in the same order as hawks, right? Like, yeah. But when you really look at them, they're, they're different. close. They're, they're close, they, but they, they're different. They must be like sister orders or something. Like they must be really, really close. So to find out what effect DDE might have, the authors fed captive kestrels a DDE laced diet, and they compared their eggs with those taken from the nests of wild kestrels. Mm -hmm. They found that dietary levels of 3, 6, and 10 parts per million, so increasing amounts, of DDE resulted in eggshells that were 14%, 17%, and 21.7% thinner, respectively. So well, the higher the dose... The calcium? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was... They held that count. Perfect, perfect. They concluded there can be little doubt of the causal relationship between the global contaminant DDE and eggshell thinning and the population declines in several birds of prey. And subsequent studies supported those findings. Hmm. So those who feel the connection between DDT and the decline of bald eagles is a myth perpetuated by, you know, radical environmentalists or whatever, they cite the studies that showed DDT didn't cause eggshell thinning in chickens and Japanese quail. Right, like the chickens are like, that stuff affects you guys? <laughs> Losers! But remember, <laughs> all those and similar studies prove is that those gallinaceous birds that you talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Galanicious. Uh, <laughs> and most passerine birds aren't as sensitive to DDT or DDE as raptors. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, again, talking about someone like the person from Skeptoid and other articles I read, 
they're just kind of like lumping all birds together and yeah. saying like, oh, see, it didn't affect chickens, so it can't be affecting bald eagles. But that would be like comparing us and what? Any other mammal. Right. I mean. Right? Just because they're pretty, all birds. Yeah. What was it? Mammals are pretty similar. Right. But how often right. we look and, and we find some effect in mice and rats, but there's no effect in us. Yeah. I mean, that's where you start there and then you move on to human trials. Exactly. And whatnot, so. Right, right. Yeah. So even though chickens and quail fed high concentrations of DDE or DDT experienced essentially no eggshell thinning, the scientific evidence points to the fact that it's another story for raptors like the bald eagle. And that's why we can say it's generally acknowledged that DDT thins the eggshells of raptors. Nice. Boom. See, I, I never know where these episodes are going to go because sometimes <laughs> you end with, and there's not good evidence. Or there is, you know, this time there was good evidence. So it's uh, nice to know the book I read back in the day that claimed that the eggshells were thinning. But that wasn't Silent I know, Spring. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that also shows why. Remember farther back in the episode we talked about how uh, bald eagle populations were declining. They passed the Bald Eagle Protection Act, but then there was that precipitous drop down yeah. to 400 pairs. That coincides with the introduction of DDT. Mm. And a lot of people arguing against this narrative, they say, oh, bald eagle decline, bald eagles were already in decline from other factors. It wasn't mm -hmm. because of DDT. They were already declining. Right. But they failed to mention that all of a sudden, even with protection, the decline increased. Right, right. Yeah, like, it's a good first thought, right? But the, the second thought is, let's identify the, right. the, those factors, right? right? And yeah. I feel that's what the studies did. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good job. Now good we know episode. about DDT and bald eagles. Yeah. And there were a lot of other questions I had about bald eagles. Maybe I'll answer those in, in another episode. Maybe I can track down that study about <laughs> yeah. sex ratios. And, and a lot of tangents to add things to the episode. <laughs> but I feel like we got a lot in and, and not oh, a lot of time. I think so, Yeah, for sure. We did very well. All right, so for our wrap-up, I want to start out with a shout-out to Valerie Hicks. She's someone who sent us a nice email saying about how she likes our delivery, and because of our podcast, she's pursuing a degree in botany. Nice. Yeah. Wow. That's a nice one. I'm going to turn it over to you to thank the patrons. Yeah, so first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you to our new patrons, Emily and Kirill. What, what happened, by the way? I see All in right. your notes, Steve combined these last time. So last time you said Emily Kirill L. You thought it was one name. Oh. And does Kirill maybe, sound familiar? Yeah, right, because that's, uh, oh my God, always <laughs> wandering, right? Art. art. Yeah, always wandering art. But Bill has called me out often because I say always wondering, but I think I just can't say wandering, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so wow, thank you so much. And I got to point out here, I'm just realizing I forgot to create the list of the patrons that signed up <laughs> since last time. So yeah. so my newborn will be... Re no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll mention them in next episode. No, you know what we'll do? I'll add them to the list when Violet reads it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so go ahead. All right, so we also like to give a special shout out each month to our top patrons. So stick around to the end of the episode to hear Bill's daughter, Violet, share the list. And remember, if you'd like to be a part of the Field Guides and read our Patreon list in future episodes, email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com or shoot us a message on social media. And if you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a patron of our show on patreon.com. As a patron, you'll get access to special patron-only versions of our episodes that include Bill sharing the episode notes. 
Because of support from our listeners, we've been able to keep the show free and make cooler episodes like Insectapalooza. Um, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal on our website. And don't forget, we have Field Guides merch available through our website store at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And remember, if you can't financially support the podcast, you can help us out by sharing it with friends and family and by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get our podcasts. It helps spread the word and allows us to reach a wider audience. We'd like to thank our newest iTunes reviewers, Down One Knit and Trey of the Pines. Mm-hmm. Okay. I almost want to say Tree of the Pines. Yeah, me too. I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> Come enjoy our sporadic posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can always email us ideas for episode topics, criticisms, or your own stories of personal encounters with bald eagles, pesticides, or more fun chemicals at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And remember, parents, like you, Steve, yeah. get those kids outside. I got them, them out in the, you know, in the stroller once already. Awesome. <laughs> Let those kids get muddy and dirty. Let them flip over rocks and logs. And hey, get yourself outside as well. Yeah. All right, folks. We'll see you next time. See you next time. And in just a moment, Violet will share the top patrons for this episode. But before that, I want to share our new patrons for this episode. So thank you, Ryan R., Sophie S., and Peter R. All right, Violet, take it away. Eric, Alyssa, Adam, the Hebranks, Mary, Callie, Sean C., Jessica, Orange Julianne, Diane, we named the dog Indy, JJ Coffee, Dwayne, Jonathan A, Connor, Measure the Principal. Try again. Measure and Principal. Measure and Principal. <laughs> Fergaria Papilinoidea. That was pretty good. Outside Chronicles, Nonicle 3, Andrew, Nathan G, Brandon, Quixote, Robert P., Max, Jake, Melissa Marie in Dusty, Arizona, Kelly, Sarah S., Helen, MD, Judy F., Ben C., Jane, Doodle Dude 82, Jeff, Esther, John, Mark V., Bethany, Rob M., Hannah. Well done. Thank you. There's some tough ones in there. (laughs) (laughs) Patrons, Steve and I, thank you so much for your support of the show. And Violet thanks you as well. (laughs) I do. Uh, And we will see you next time.